0: Leadership is taking people on a journey where there is a vision,
1: guidance and purpose. Good leaders lead with the heart as well as the head.
2: Leadership means doing the right thing for the right reason, no matter how difficult it might be. You're listening to Leadership Unwrapped, a podcast where you will hear from people who are living leadership every day. I'm Niamh. And I'm Patricia. And this week on our podcast, we were talking to Paul Campbell. Paul is vice principal of a, of a school in Hong Kong. And I have to say, i have totally blown away talking to Paul. His knowledge about collaboration and about teachers, the authentic way in which he leads and just how influenced he is by research and by a real desire to improve a system. I just, I could have talked to him all day
0: yeah yeah he he's amazing i i first met him online um at a conference and i've had the pleasure of meeting him um a couple of times this year as well and he he never fails to teach me something new when i'm speaking to him so um i hope you all you all find the same i'm sure you will i'm sure you're going to get lots from the conversation and yeah i hope you enjoy it
2: yeah absolutely
0: happy listening We're delighted to be joined this morning by Dr. Paul Campbell. Paul is vice principal at an international school in Hong Kong, where he's responsible for learning, teaching, assessment, child protection, and safeguarding and professional learning. Paul is also a scholar practitioner fellow at the Asia Pacific Centre for Leadership and Change hosted at the Education University of Hong Kong. Paul is part of and leads a number of research and practice networks. So, Paul, it's an impressive introduction to be giving you, isn't it? Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your journey to to getting here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for uh, giving the introduction. Um, I suppose I've not always lived in Hong Kong, and I've not always been a vice principal. Um, I've been in Hong Kong for the past five years um, at the same school, initially as a class teacher, um, and then moved on to, I was a lead teacher for year group, a lead teacher across the school for curriculum development, and then on to vice principal just last uh, school year. Um, initially I uh, did a Bachelor of Education um, at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow um, in their Jordan Hill campus, one of the oldest teacher education providers in the UK so I was always keen to go there um, and I had a great time so that was a four year program and one of the great things about Scotland was that you have the guaranteed one year contract in a school to complete the teacher induction scheme or your probation year Um, So I was allocated to a local authority that's just in between um, Glasgow and Edinburgh, and taught a great class of primary three, so they were six and seven years old. Um, But after, I thought there was a lot of experiences I had on the B.Ed. program um, that got me interested in, I suppose, education internationally, not necessarily international education, um, but education in other systems and contexts. And I thought, well, while I have the freedom, the flexibility, why don't I go and try out these different systems so I thought I'll do my one year um, in the teacher induction scheme in Scotland and then I'll see what possibilities there are elsewhere and there was two opportunities come up one was in Australia and one was in Barcelona and so I went to Australia initially um, which was great and it was a 3 to 18 private independent school just outside Melbourne Um, and I worked as a specialist literacy teacher and then decided actually that I didn't want to specialise so early in my teaching career as a generalist primary teacher so decided actually to then take the job in Barcelona the following year, and I was there for three years in Barcelona, which was a partly government funded, partly private school. and it was English medium, and that was a great experience. And I was a class teacher in it was the year before primary one, so there were three and four year olds, and also then in grade two, which was similar to primary three, so six and seven. And I was head of maths throughout my time there, and then came to Hong Kong. So that's kind of the slow journey throughout that. But in the meantime, I also completed a Master of Education looking at um teacher agency and education policy development in Scotland. Um, I did that at Strathclyde as well. And then did my doctorate at the University of Glasgow, which i just completed in December 2021. So I um, tried don't, to don't cram along. <laughs> those
2: little things on the
1: side. Those little things on the side. They just kind of yeah. kept going. <laughs>
2: It's like having a lot of full-time jobs. And what was the doctorate on?
1: Yeah, so my doctorate looked at collaboration um, for educational change. Oh, so it was looking at how collaboration is used as a political tool, really, um, to, I suppose, to initiate, but also to lead change and how it became a linchpin within systems, but without us actually having a sophisticated enough understanding of the complexity of it. So it was mainly a critical policy analysis with some interviews with primary school headteachers in Scotland to understand what the lived reality looked like.
2: Okay, so when you say that it's a political tool, what do you mean?
1: Well, I suppose what was kind of emerging was that collaboration was featuring in how we constitute, what it means to be a professional, what constitutes effective professional practice across the public sector. Um, And I'm talking kind of broadly and globally with a focus on the UK, but actually seeing it across systems, particularly from the turn of the century, Um, but being used as a political tool as well in terms of actually not just as a tool to rationalise change and policy agendas, but actually to ensure that actors within systems are conforming to particular agendas or approaches within those agendas, rather than collaboration being a tool. Um, to help us understand better the communities these policy agendas are supposed to support um, or to try and understand the problems the communities are facing better through different forms of collaboration.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, the OECD report, I think in 1991, but my year could be wrong, talked about Irish teachers having legendary autonomy and, and, and this was a bad thing in, in terms of how they were phrasing this and this led to an influence in policy around pushing collaboration as well very strongly for us in Ireland. Mm-hmm. But... Um, one of the things that I'm curious about is the assumption that we all have to collaborate and that we all collaborate well. And um, mm-hmm. the longer I'm 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 doing what I do, the less convinced of that I am. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts might be on that one.
1: That's I mean I think you sum up perfectly, and that's the that was the rationale behind focusing on collaboration because I think the. My interest is particularly around, I guess, leadership and governance at different levels within systems. But I ended up focusing particularly on collaboration because of how much I found it a challenge as a professional in schools. And all the context I worked in, that was the common theme. And it got to a stage where when I moved to a different system, different curriculum framework, different policy context, I was actually printing and bringing some of the key policy texts to meetings that I was going to having highlighted them beforehand to make sure that I was using the correct vocabulary within that system. And then I realised, why is it taking me learning vocabulary markers to be able to collaborate effectively or to be able to get my point across? That's not collaboration. Um, And I think more generally, it was also then this realisation that we were advocating, not just advocating for collaboration, but actually situating it as a linchpin to any successful change. And I don't think linchpin's even a word without actually paying sufficient attention to what does it actually mean to collaborate or what are we talking about when we use collaboration in the policy space and how, do, or how does the fact that in Scotland, for example, they had the OECD report in 2015, which really emphasised collaboration, which is also unsurprising given some of the authors who had a big emphasis on collaborative professionalism and collaboration more broadly. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. But what was interesting was the first thing to shift was the governance arrangements within the system that was supposedly being shifted or changed to enable different forms of collaboration to happen. But what the head teachers that uh, participated massively then reported back was actually that it limited the forms of collaboration that were possible because the power to initiate it ended up resting with fewer people as a result of those changes.
2: Yeah, it was less organic, I think, and this what I call contrived collaboration. This 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 bit mm-hmm. where we where we try and manufacture it. Um, it's complex because people are complex, and people's Sorry. people's agendas are complex, but also their visions around their work. And I don't think that you can force people into thinking in the same way. As a matter of fact, my biggest concern is the trend towards groupthink and trying to push us into thinking mm-hmm. in the same way. Because I still believe that it's in that dissent and that that healthy conflict that new growth and new ideas come. So mm-hmm. it's a complex space. Um, I'm a little bit worried about the sort of the um, a contextual way that we think about it in policy, and then Absolutely. try and implement it. If that makes if that makes any sense to you.
1: Mm-hmm. No, and I think that's and that's the I think that should continue to be everybody's key concern is the fact that when we are talking about collaboration, I like that idea in an a contextual way. Because this is the thing, people are complex. And if we're trying to simultaneously respect the professionalism, the capital, the ideas, the expertise that every single professional brings to the table, when we look at collaboration in too binary way, it actually well pretends to do the hard work for us in terms of well, this enables people with different ideas or breakdown barriers or whatever to be able to come together. But actually it means that hard work of trying to understand, well, what does everybody bring to the table, including their understanding of not just the purpose, but the definition of collaboration and why they're doing it for a particular reason, who's initiated it and why. If that hard work isn't done, then I don't ever believe that we can reach genuine collaboration. Yeah,
2: I also feel my own research looks at bullying, incivility, where relationships break down, school culture, all that area. But... When people are forced into spaces to work in places that they don't wish to do, where their agency is reduced around their work, they become unwell, actually, they become more stressed mm-hmm. when their mm-hmm. capacity to make choices and to initiate and to to generate and be creative themselves is is hampered and they're in this space. Uh, we find people get really isolated. The, the opposite is the outcome of what actually is initially trying to yeah. be achieved is mm-hmm. certainly what we're finding in our research. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those things like the
0: the idea, I suppose, is great. And like, it, it, you know, when, when you first think of it and hear about it, like the, it's all benefits that are kind of screaming at you. And I suppose it's just a different thing when you get down to the nitty gritty of actually implementing it. And then, you know, you're, you you both said there about individuals being so complex and then you're adding, you know, like group dynamics and relations into it, which obviously it makes it so much more complex
1: again. Absolutely. And I think that's and that's what I found interesting, because at the end of the thesis, I was very conscious that I didn't want to get to a stage where I'm developing a definition of collaboration, because I also don't think that's possible. But what I wanted to try and develop was uh and what kind of, it was basically what had emerged from the data itself was a framework for understanding collaboration and uh, basically come up with these three different areas of looking at the forms of collaboration, the drivers behind it and the influences on it. But what was interesting when we're looking at how we understand the forms of collaboration, what was what became really clear from what the um, head teacher participants had shared was the fact that it's very frequently used as either an organisational tool or with a focus on learning. But when the boundaries become blurred, it actually detracts from both. So it's this idea that collaboration is just a given because you've got three teachers teaching the same age group. And then also it's just a given because actually if we've got a school improvement priority looking at how we raise reading attainment, then we're going to use these teams to help us understand how we go about that. But actually when the time is taken up with collaboration, it's been initiated out with that team then, as you say, it prevents then this kind of more organic forms of collaboration emerging based on what can often be a much more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of the nature of the challenges these individual teachers or school leaders or communities are actually facing and what collaboration could offer them in actually addressing some of these challenges or understanding them better.
2: Do you think this is something that teachers and school leaders are interested in looking at and talking about? Did you find that in your research? Was there an appetite for it?
1: Well, what was interesting was that each of the head teachers who spoke to the participated in the study initially were just wanting to give the right answer. So a lot of the transcripts, which I included in the thesis as well, um, had a few of them actually saying, I'm not sure if this is right, or I'm not sure if I should give a bit more detail to this, or I'm not actually sure if this is what um, I want to say, but this is what I mean. But then what was interesting was that halfway through with one of the participants, but this participant actually said to me, oh, actually, now that we've been talking about this, I'm not even sure this is collaboration. This is just people sitting in a room together. And I thought, right, this is fascinating to see the kind of sense-making process that the participants were going through. Just through responding to the questions, which were things like, um, what's your definition of collaboration? Where did your definition come from? What forms of collaboration do you engage in on a day-to-day basis? What was interesting was that When they were responding to the question after trying to define it, that's when they were starting to question, actually, hold on, this might not be collaboration. But also I decided that I didn't want to just use the standard format of just they have questions to respond to in a semi-structured interview. So I actually used vignettes as well and had some examples of collaboration at national, regional, local, and school level for them to read and then respond to. And that's what was fascinating because there was the I mean, and I used them for a variety of reasons, thinking, right, the questions they are more likely to give me some standard responses using kind of what's the most close frame of reference they had. Whereas I thought the vignettes might help kind of enable them to kind of make a connection to something they've experienced, maybe give some more, I don't know, I suppose, not necessarily more considered, but more complex responses when they're having to just respond to the scenario. And what was interesting was that they did—they made connections a lot to not just the example that was given in the vignette, but they were connecting a lot to some of the um, collaboration they'd engaged in that was connected to it, but also that then connected back to what had emerged from the, my earlier policy analysis. So the shift in governance, the new regional improvement collaboratives. And I still remember one of the participants saying that they call it collaboration, but we're coming together, we're sitting in the same room. I share what I'm doing at my school, this said teacher shares what they're doing at their school, and then we leave at the end of the day. So I realise now that that's not collaboration, that's us coming into a room and sharing together. And some of the participants then would go on and they it would kind of. The sense making process was them, I think, coming to an even greater realisation of the complexity of collaboration, because then they would say things like, Well, I realise that's part of it, or part of us collaborating together is sharing. That's about then they would identify that that was possible when they're working with different agencies within the community. They actually had a joint focus, they had connected domains of expertise, they had a shared understanding of what the nature of the problem was and what they were trying to achieve. So collaboration was much more, um, I suppose you could say, natural or easier to emerge and sustain. But when it was relying on these mm-hmm. different or new forms of governance, then actually what was happening was the collaboration that was coming from it. That's when they were starting to question well, is that actually collaboration or is that us sitting in the same room? And I think that's the sort of sense making process that I think everyone needs to go through, whether it's policymakers that are advocating for collaboration for a particular purpose or for school leaders or for teachers themselves that are hoping to initiate things in different ways.
2: I think that's the most amazing thing about research is that we underestimate the catalytic nature of it, that it can actually really move people into deeper thinking or uh, simply by just engaging in an interview or, or engaging in some mm-hmm. questions around it. So, and I certainly have found that myself when, when you bring people into focus groups, for example, and one person is talking about an experience and the other might be saying, oh God, that's actually, that's, I never put words on this. This is what's happening for us and goes back and, and looks at that. So um, there's a piece in research in the profession that this brings that we underestimate it's not just about me being a teacher researching my own yeah. practice, but it's actually about mm-hmm. engaging with other people's research so that I'm changing my thinking or I have catalysts going on to, to move me in other directions. So that that's a pretty amazing outcome of your research. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're prompting school leaders mm-hmm. to think differently about how they're conceptualizing the collaboration that's going on in their teams, um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: it might help support more organic yeah, growth of that I type think... of collaboration, I would hope.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the danger is with, you know, ideas like collaboration, because it's a word that's, you know, so commonly used and so commonly put out there. It's one of those things that you be like, oh, yeah, I know. Like, I know what collaboration is until you really start having that reflective process of, right, what exactly are we doing when we you know do collaboration within our particular setting and what do we actually mean by it? It's a totally different thing because it's a word that's so often used in practice. You know what I mean? And I think mm. that's that's the it's the danger with it in one sense. And it's probably why I like I I'm not, I suppose, hugely surprised that when people started to kind of answer more questions about, about it and think about and reflect on it a bit more, that there there was some moments like that.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's I always found the work early on interesting. I mean lots of um researchers have looked at this, whether it's Alma Harris or Linda Evans, et cetera, uh, Conceptual confusion. And I think this was one of the key things. And I think Linda Evans' work was actually um, really helpful for me. She has a book, um, Reflective Practice in Educational Research, and she has a whole section about the importance of clarity of concepts. And that was huge. just something about that struck me about how important that was across the system, not just in the research, but in the research as well. And I think that was the thing that came out was the fact that when I was doing the analysis of the policy text, I had five key policy texts and then some of the associated media, et cetera, um, that went with it. And that's what was becoming quite clear was that there's always seems to be an assumed understanding of something like collaboration or even the concept of leadership or concepts of leadership as well. It's the same thing. Um, But actually that assumed understanding will vary depending on the read or how it's contextualized within certain policy texts. So how collaboration was being conceptualized within the review of education governance was different from how collaboration was being conceptualized within the OECD review, which stimulated the review of education governance. Mm -hmm. And of course, what the lived reality of that was like was hugely important to me, which is why the interviews were part of this, because we had to understand, right, okay, well, this is what's been advocated for. What's the understanding then that's presented as opposed to the one that's in the literature? There's obviously varied, the varied definitions in policy texts. And then, of course, the varied definitions in practice as well.
2: I actually think conceptual clarity is under siege. (laughs) I really do, because and you've talked about it in relation to leadership. So I think there's just a move at the moment where concepts, everything becomes the concept. So, for example, leadership is everything to do with leadership. So if I'm doing anything, I'm in leadership. And I don't agree with that. I think we need mm-hmm. clear conceptual mm-hmm. clarity around these kind of things. And my thinking is shaped by my work on bullying for because, because if people fall out with each other, we say that's bullying. It's not. That's just conflict. But when mm-hmm. we dilute the term and we say everything is that, we lose the essence of what we're trying to achieve. So the same is happening at the moment with leadership. When I look at the way people are writing about leadership... And people are talking about leadership. And that's not to be overly traditional about how we're looking at at concepts. But if we want to move things forward, we need to be very clear about what is the concept that we're talking about. And I'm Mm -hmm. not so stuck on definitions, but I'm certainly clear about parameters around the work that we do. Collaboration would be another one that would be exposed to this because we all think we know what it is. And to some degree, we do. We all have experience of it, Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. um, but we're not unpacking our assumptions about it. And it's when you unpack the assumptions that you see yeah. the differences in the understanding. Like, oh, when we come into the room and we're sharing, we're coming into the room and we're sharing. We're not collaborating as such. We're, yeah. we're, we're information sharing.
1: That's a different concept. Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm a and I think, concerned about that.
1: And I think that it's a valid concern because I think for me, the, I wouldn't say there's many answers that came from a thesis, but one of the answers for me in practice was that right, this reinforces the point that we need to stop just saying, right, this is collaboration or collaboration is important. It kind of, I don't know, I felt validated in the fact that this is what I felt, this is what I was thinking, but then it was the nuance and the kind of, right, okay, the clarity that came from doing this significant piece of research that came from that, that then illuminated these points. But I think what I found interesting and what I would like to do next, particularly with a focus on the content of empowerment, which seems to be emerging a lot across different systems. Which infuriate? Not infuriate. Well, no, it doesn't infuriate me actually. Um, the lack of clarity around it infuriates me. <laughs> is there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in work on, for example, concept analysis. being done in the health and other social sciences as well in the health field and other social sciences. And I think there's some really interesting work that could be done there. I like think it needs to go beyond just analysis of the discourse. But an analysis of the concepts and what constitutes these concepts that are being used and how they're mobilized, but actually how reaching a more sophisticated understanding of them could help us better understand the forms that these things take and how we research it how we practice it how we plan for it through policy um there's a, a lot of possibility i think
2: yeah I, i'm you're talking my language I've spent a lot of time looking at empowerment and um and we talk about empowerment all the time as if it's something that we do for other people, which is absolutely impossible. So we need to really go back and look at where, how we understand power and how we understand power sharing and how we understand how power ebbs and flows. I'm being Foucauldian now and saying that, but how it ebbs and flows between people um, so that we understand that it's not just you know, A has power over B and B has power over A. So suddenly Mm -hmm. the whole concept Mm -hmm. of empowerment becomes something different. Um, And yet in policy, we see a lot of talk about how leaders empower other people. And actually leaders don't empower anyone. Leaders create the conditions for people to take on empowerment. This is just my rant now. But these kind of assumptions are really important if we want to be able to have outcomes in the work that we want to do around empowerment and agency it's getting a bit excited there about the whole concept of power and stop now.
1: But no, I think, and you're speaking my language for sure as well. I ended up, I won't go into the details of it, but I still remember sitting in a coffee shop that's literally just around the corner trying to problematise, right, how do I address this in the way that I think it needs to be addressed, but also the way I want to in the thesis, the idea of power in relation to all of this, because I'm looking at how collaboration was being positioned, the leadership and governance of it through a policy lens in the literature and in practice. So I ended up just dedicating a whole chapter to, I ended up calling it, I think, a postmodern lens on what was emerging from the data and, of course, relying on Foucault a lot. But I think that's what the key thing for me was, that it was about trying to illuminate and understand and emphasise the complex ecological factors that sit around leadership, collaboration, governance, empowerment, the same as just with agency, and I was influenced a lot by the work, of was Mark Priestley and Sarah Robinson and Gert Vista the, their ecological framework of agency. And I thought, actually, this is interesting if we're going to take some of these ideas um, and apply this to collaboration, but also just to help us understand better the emergence of collaboration, the exercise or experience, of different forms of leadership, of empowerment, etc., when you apply that sort of lens to it, to try and situate, not just situate where power is, but understand what's influencing it, what's driving it, who holds it and why and when, for how long, when does that change? This is what we need to understand. And the reason I'm so interested in this is not just uh, emancipatory in nature. It's also about, I want systems to do better and they can do better. But if we don't have a more sophisticated understanding of this, then actually in the policy space, never mind in the practice space, we're never going to reach the intended outcomes as planned. Patricia, the point that you made as well
0: about it doesn't necessarily mean like by us advocating for kind of clearer understandings of these concepts, it doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be that traditional look and it has to be a real tight definition. Like, as you said, Paul, even about collaboration, you know, it's it's impossible to have a tight definition of, of something like that. But I think it is important To have, you know, whether it's general values, uh, general parameters, principles, like anything like that that you want to put in it. I think that's what's important because by people having different understandings of things, whether it's policy, whether it's practice, whether it's even, you know, the three of us trying to collaborate together and we have different understandings of it. That's where I think it, it can cause conflict. So you might say, right, if you still have the same general idea of it, it's fine. But like by disagreeing over kind of simple things under this concept that you think you're enacting, I think that's when it, people can start to disagree. It, it's not as effective and conflict can kind of occur then. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's, what's, that's what's important and that's what needs to be prevented from just having these kind of parameters around these concepts, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I throw one more thing in, which is, we assume people have the interpersonal and intrapersonal skills to engage mm-hmm. in collaboration, but also to be able to fix the conflict when it comes up in the collaborative group. And mm-hmm. uh, teachers don't necessarily always have that. We assume that we do, but mm-hmm. we don't. So there's mm-hmm. another piece to this, that when we, when, we, when we say in policy, this is what we, we want, and this is what we want for our teachers to do, Uh, We need to look at the person behind the act that we want. And that's the piece that's missing. What's the skill set in order to be able, because if we don't and things go awry, very easily in the workplace, people can stay out with each other for a long time. And suddenly we're not Mm -hmm. working together anymore with that person because they're impossible to work with when maybe it could be a small thing that had. Somebody the skill to row in and fix it um, mm-hmm. would have been dealt with in two seconds flat.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So there are pieces that this is are familiar to it for me. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I think, I mean, what you touched on, Neve, as well, this idea that, because I think the shared values and even sometimes the kind of structuring tools to enable collaboration to happen, mm-hmm. these are things that I, by instinct, always kind of pushed against when I'm actually trying to engage in it. But when we were coming together, when there was more organic forms of collaboration happening, they were actually a useful toolbox for me to go to, to now think about, right, actually, how am I going to get the team to be able to come together and analyse, right, how are we working or whatever else it might be? And it took me into that idea of the, do we actually have the skill set to be able to collaborate effectively, but also to deal with the conflict or to... And so there's a lot, I mean, and that's the one thing I've enjoyed about this foundation of schools that I've been working in the past five years, is that there have been quite a significant emphasis on the social and emotional dimension to collaboration and how we enable it to happen, how we sustain it through the regular collaborative self-evaluation or reflection on how we're working together as a team when we're actually just part of a team because we're in the same year group or same school or whatever. And th- there was a lot of strengths in that, but I think where the challenge then always lay was the fact that when you've got too much mandated time for collaboration, the form that it takes becomes actually really limited because you only got, I mean, the context I'm in now is excellent amount of time that teachers have to be able to plan within the school day, to collaborate with each other, to prepare things, whatever it might be. But because of the parameters on where that collaboration can happen, who's available at that time, um, then actually there's a lot of parameters set on what the focus of it can actually be. So I remember as a new leader coming in and trying to have more of a professional learning focus on this time, but getting some pushback saying, look, this is all really nice, but we need to plan this. Or... We need to plan this unit or we need to moderate these assessments, which are all purposeful focuses for collaboration. Um, but what I found useful, both in my research and practice, was Amanda Datnow's work from, um, I think she's at San Diego. Um, and her book, Professional Collaboration with Purpose, was excellent. But what I loved more was that I remember hearing her first at XA 2018 in Stavanger, I think, or no, 2019 in Stavanger, and she gave a keynote. And what I just couldn't get over was her relationship with the schools that she was researching and the fact that she would spend a lot of time and the focus obviously was collaboration, but she would spend sometimes three or four days of the week um, even outside the parameters of the research project and actually be in working with um, the school, but also sometimes just observing, just observing the team meetings or the different forms collaboration was taking. So the kind of nuances that she was picking up then some of the work that then came after that that she's done on the emotional dimension of collaboration has been hugely impactful for me because you kind of, in one way, it's helped a lot with kind of making sense of some of the data and also just my broader research. But at the same time, it's helping me just as an individual, as a professional, thinking, right, I find this really taxing or I find this really difficult. Are there certain groups that I'm going to collaborate with and I'm dreading every Tuesday at three o'clock? when I have to go in and work with this group and helping me understand why that was and what to be able to do with that, not through recipes or protocols, but using research as a framework for understanding these problems or these complexities, which was really important.
2: Yeah, it's really helpful, I think. Really helpful. Yeah. And I think, Paul,
0: you're in such a, like, you're in such a brilliant position to be doing, you know, this work. And, like, it's, like, I love speaking to, and I think it's a lot of, a lot of what I get from you is all of the perspectives you'd see things from, do you know, which I think is an incredible thing to be able to do. And I imagine it also lends very well into the fact that, you know, you're, you're a vice principal working in a school, you've worked in several different contexts and you have the research part and you're part of so many, you know, research and practice networks and stuff as well. And I think, you know, it, you're, Your work in each of those areas, I imagine, give you a very well-rounded view of things. And I I imagine that they feed into one another very well. Um, And taking a kind of a slightly different direction, I guess that must be so challenging, though. You know, I can't imagine how busy you are. Um, So do you want to tell us a little bit about like how how you find working in these different areas kind of benefit each other and how you manage, I suppose, doing all of that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I wish I could answer it. Uh, my bog standard interview response is always, "Ah, oh, I'm very used to um, managing multiple and complex work streams, um, which basically is a non-answer. Um, no, I think that they're all very complimentary <laughs> in the sense that I'm very keen on, I just, I, I want to understand the systems that we're a part of. And I think that there's so much that we can learn, so much opportunity that we have through various networks, whether it's the International Professional Development Association or Belmas or Exe or whatever, where you've got these unique spaces where people are coming together with the shared purpose of sharing and learning. Um, and I think that there's a huge amount that I've gained from that. And even, I suppose, the, the doing the research and doing postgraduate research and then obviously a doctorate as well kind of i think force me into learning particular skills whether that is actually just workload management time management etc which then lets me do other things and i think what i realized as well was that the connections you make between them then lead you to different possibilities and opportunities and one of them recently i was thinking about was the fact that it was both my research but also being in hong kong and realizing that actually there's important work that's happening outside the foundation and the public system in Hong Kong is complex and varied as well. I was able to kind of just start connecting the dots and did some work recently on looking at the leadership of different forms of professional learning in the Hong Kong public system and how professional learning and teacher education more broadly is understood as a career-long professional trajectory. And the time and effort went into that was a lot of holidays and that sort of thing and evenings. But what was so important was then going into conversation, whether it was in my own school or across the foundation of schools, whether it was a practice focus a policy focus, I was able to actually then draw upon saying, well, actually, this is what's happening with these schools in Shungwan or these schools in Chunwan, whatever, um, and actually be able to start make, start to make these connections. And what I was really happy kind of reflecting on when I completed a chapter on this about recently And I thought, oh, do you know what? That was really enjoyable. And the reason it was really enjoyable was because it was something I was interested in, but it was letting me actually understand the con, the complex context here much better. But then also I was able to use it in my professional day-to-day practice as well. And I think that's where, I think that's what sustains the sometimes difficult and um complex times or the huge amount of time you end up having to spend on these things because you do then realize actually i'm learning something really interesting here i'm going to be able to do something really interesting with this so there's no magic or straightforward answer to it i guess but i just enjoy it
2: one of the things we do is we ask kind of rapid fire questions at the end of as we come towards the end of our podcast so um sure I'll start off question, which one is a leader who inspires you and why? I
1: think I'm going to go back to Amanda Datt now. Um, So I see her as a leader in research and the academy, but also in the field more broadly. And I think because of her commitment to trying to understand and showcase the complexity of a lot of the things that teachers and school leaders are engaged in day by day, and trying to add that kind of... Greater sophistication or greater nuance to what we're trying to advocate when it comes to educational change and improvement. Because I think one of the things that has frustrated me quite a lot in the past is the kind of deficit view that's there, or the deficit lens, the way teachers and schoolers are positioned in systems. Whereas actually, what she does is kind of amplify the complexity we're working within and, I guess, help systems negotiate that.
2: I love that. I think that's really good.
0: The next one is uh, looking back on your leadership experiences and your leadership journey to date. Is there anything that you would do differently?
1: Yes, I think um, what I would do differently is, well, I suppose it's not necessarily listen more. I think I'm actually quite a good listener, but respond less. Um, I think the one thing I've learned is that I don't always need to be the problem solver. And also, I'm not always the best problem solver if it's in the moment when someone's sharing something or I think the best solutions and the best way of coming up with the solutions is actually after you've spent the time listening, but then actually dwell on and reflect on a little bit more before you then are the one offering something, I think. So it's more about, I guess, responding less in the moment and actually taking my time.
2: I really love that, I have to say. Um One piece of advice you would give to somebody starting out?
1: I think that people talk about it a lot, but I think ultimately when you are starting out, I think in any form of leadership is about always coming back to why are you doing it and who is it for? And I think that because the reason I say that is because kids spot that a mile off. I think that every day, I notice every single day when I'm standing at the school gate, welcome, we've got 900 students in my school, when they come in, trying to remember all their names, but also make sure everyone gets a greeting. They can tell just through those minor decisions, as well as the bigger ones, about, right, well, what is your purpose or role within this community, and why are you doing it? If it's something that's completely orientated on the self and about career advancement and thinking it's the right thing to do this or to move on to that, things are never going to work. Whereas actually, if you're constantly kind of orientated towards, and for me, it's always been about, right, I want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to develop a sense of self and of their identity, the communities they're a part of, and understand, based on that, how can I take action in different ways to better these communities? And I think that without being able to have that to constantly come back to, you don't have an anchor in terms of your decision-making, your interactions, and people pick up on that very, very quickly. And I think that if you go into leadership without that kind of grounding, it's going to take a lot longer to achieve any sort of success from what you're offering to the community that you're leading.
2: There's a real authenticity in what you're saying yeah. that I quite
1: like. Mm. You know, yeah, very much so.
2: Paul, as always, I love
0: speaking to you. As I say, I, I think I always, I always get so much from listening to you. I really do. And I, I, I think you just, you're, you're so thoughtful in how you, how you speak um, and I think that, you know, even your answer to the last question there, I think it, it just comes across so strongly, you know. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you so much. That's so kind of obvious to say as well. And I'm um, just really grateful for the opportunity to chat with you. And I've learned loads as well, which is great. So thank you so much.
2: It's my first time meeting you, but I, I, I'd like to continue the conversation.
1: So, um, me too. Just,
2: yeah, that's been great. Really appreciate it. Thank
1: you no, so likewise. much. Thanks, Paul. I reading. hope we can connect again.